It's the 30th of May in the year of our salvation, 2009. This is the Vigil of Pentecost. And you're back with Father Z and another podcast. Today we will hear about the Year for Priests, which was declared by our Holy Father Pope Benedict XVI, and especially about the indulgence offered for this year. Then, as a way to help us prepare for a deeper observance of this year for priests, we will welcome as our guest, Blessed Pope Pius IX, who died in 1878. Today we will hear him speak to us from one of his encyclical letters. Our Holy Father Pope Benedict has declared a special year for priests to mark the 150th Jubilee of the death of St. John Vianney, patron of priests. The year will begin on the Solemnity of the Sacred Heart of Jesus, that's 19 June of 2009, and lasts for one year. And for this year, a plenary indulgence is being offered. Now, priests gain the plenary indulgence in a different way from lay people. Priests gain the plenary indulgence by praying lauds or vespers before the Blessed Sacrament exposed to public adoration or in the tabernacle. They must also offer themselves with a ready and generous heart for the celebration of the sacraments, especially the sacrament of penance. This is to be accomplished by sacramental confession, the Eucharist, and praying for the intentions of the Pope. You know, what we mean by that is not just, you know, I'm going to pray for the Pope, but I'm going to pray for the intentions the Pope designates, and those change every month. It can also apply, uh, be applied to priests who have died. So this is really a great work of charity, isn't it? Priests get a partial indulgence, also, which can be applied to uh, priests who have died, every time they devoutly recite the prayers duly approved and lead a saintly life and carry out the duties entrusted to them. Now the faithful, on the other hand, can gain a plenary indulgence on the opening and closing days of the year for priests, on the 150th anniversary of the death of St. John Vianney, and on the first Thursday of the month, Thursday of course is a Eucharistic day, or on any other day established by the ordinaries of particular places for the good of the faithful. In other words, if your local bishop says, no, everyone, you can, because it's your priest, you lay faithful can also get an indulgence today. Um, then, of course, you can get the indulgence. So to obtain the indulgence, the faithful must attend Mass in an oratory or church, and offer prayers to Jesus Christ, supreme and eternal priest, for the priests of the church. Or you can also perform a good work to sanctify and mold priests to his sacred heart. And to gain a plenary indulgence, lay people are to have gone to confession and to have prayed for the intentions 
of the Pope. Once again, that's, those are the intentions he designates. Now, what happens if you can't go to church and do these things? You know, if you're sick or shut in or something like that. Well, the elderly and the sick and people who, for legitimate reasons, are impeded from leaving their homes, you can still obtain a plenary indulgence if, uh, in accordance also with the usual three conditions, if you can go as soon as you can on the days concerned and you pray for the sanctification of priests and offer your sickness or your suffering or your impediment, whatever it might be, to God through Mary, Queen of Apostles. Now, a partial indulgence is offered to the faithful in this way when you repeat five times the Our Father, Hail Mary, and Glory Be, or any other duly approved prayer in honor of the Sacred Heart of Jesus to ask that priests maintain purity and sanctity of life. Now, there are quite a few uh, prayers that are approved uh, to the Sacred Heart of Jesus. So, reciting that prayer five times for that intention, right, the purity and sanctity of life of priests, you can gain your partial indulgence. Now, indulgences are great gifts of the church uh, from the abundance of the merits of Christ and of the saints that are extended to the whole church. And anyone can, uh, like, withdraw uh, from, from this great treasury just by performing these works with the right disposition of soul and the right intention. So uh, an indulgence, uh, you know, and these are things that are not very well understood today, I think. An indulgence is a remission before God of the temporal punishment due to sins whose guilt has already been forgiven, which the faithful, uh, any, any member of the, the, the Christian faithful who is duly disposed, you know, properly disposed, can gain under certain defined conditions given by the church, with the church's help, because the church uh, wants to apply or help you apply the treasury of satisfactions won by Christ and the saints. These superabundant merits and, and uh, treasures won by Christ and the saints, they can be applied to us. I, what, an, what an absolutely incredible thing. And so what this is, is the remission of temporal punishment due to sin, Sins whose guilt have has already been forgiven. So, uh, and this is where we you know kind of cut to the uh, the chase with people's misunderstandings about indulgences. And I'm talking about Catholics and non-Catholics alike, right? So, when explaining what an indulgence is, you're talking about indulgences. If this topic ever comes up, we have to be careful to remind people that these are not get out of hell free cards, which can be purchased. Nothing in this can be purchased. They are not, indulgences are not for sins which one might commit in the future. Uh, they are not for actual forgiveness of sins. They are for uh, the remission of the temporal punishment due to sin. You know, when we commit sins and we confess them and obtain forgiveness for them, we still have to do penance. But it's you know, very possible that we haven't done adequate penance for the sins that have been forgiven. And so, because we, come, we might come to our judgment in God's friendship, in the state of grace, but not having done adequate penance in this life for the sins that we committed and were forgiven, God doesn't therefore instantly banish us to hell because we have some imperfections on our soul. You know, remember, only the pure see God, right? So we can't be admit, admitted to the beatific vision with these imperfections because we haven't done enough penance for the sins that were committed and forgiven. Instead, God in his great mercy allows uh, this remission of temporal punishment to take place even after death, provided that we die in the state of grace and in God's friendship. And so those uh, souls who still need a little polishing, as it were, can be polished in this way in, uh, and perfect uh, their love for God in that state called purgatory. But because the church is one church, though we distinguish it as the heavenly church, that is the, you know, the church triumphant, and uh, the church militant, that is the people who belong to the church who are still here in this world, uh, 
and also the church suffering, the church was in which is in purgatory, you know, we're all still interconnected. We, as the friends of those who are in the church suffering in purgatory, can, through the, the wonderful merits uh, and satisfactions won by Christ and the saints, through the ministry of the church, as a great minister of God's mercy, can perform certain works the church designates so that the temporal punishment due to sin that has already been forgiven could be you know, relieved for those people. So that is what Holy Church is trying to do. This is a great work of charity, indulgences. And we shouldn't get ourselves into a mindset that this is just some kind of medieval thing that doesn't apply to our very sophisticated uh, modern day way of looking things. No, no. This is a wonderful work of charity. It's a great work of mercy to pray for the living, of course, but also to pray for the dead. And we wouldn't pray for the dead if our prayers couldn't do any good for them. People in heaven don't need our prayers. People in hell don't benefit from our prayers. It's those, that the church suffering that benefits from our prayers here in this life. This year of priests is a great gift to the church. Now, Pope Benedict has given us this gift, not just to show appreciation for priests, to say thanks, but to strengthen and help our holiness and identity as a, as a whole church together. The pre, as the priest goes, so too go the faithful, and vice versa. The head and the body are connected and dependent on each other. The priest, who has the care of souls, shapes and forms the laity so that they can, in turn, shape and form the world around them, each according to their different vocations. And this is one of the burning difficulties and problems of our time. We need to know who we are as a church and be strong in that identity and be holy so that we can shape the, the world around us. Now, Pope Benedict, uh, I think, has given us this year of priests precisely to address this burning problem of our time. He knows that we have to help to sanctify priests so that the whole church can be made stronger and clearer in the face of the world in these difficult days. And so this is one of the reasons why he is focused on priests uh, in this coming special year. And also, for example, in giving us the Modu Proprio Sumorum Pontificum, which emancipated the use of the older liturgical books. See, I think that as more and more priests learn the older forms, their understanding of who they are as priests and what they are about at the altar an all-important activity for priests, that understanding will deepen as they come to know the older Mass better and better. This will affect in turn the way they celebrate the newer form of Mass, and this in turn is going to affect their flocks. Because when a shepherd's role is clear to himself, the whole flock benefits and when it's defective or incomplete or vague, then the whole flock is at risk. So considering how important this year for priests can be for us as a whole church in these troubled times, we can use some of these podcasts maybe to deepen our understanding of priests, of who they are, what their priesthood is, how that priesthood is different from that of the baptized, what the role of priests is, what their needs may be, and how we can help them. And as a first foray into this, 
let's move along to today's guest uh, as one of our many ways to enrich our approach to our observance of this year of priests. And so we uh, come to introduce now Pope Pius IX, born as Giovanni Maria Mastai Ferretti. Uh, he was the longest reigning pope, uh, despite some uh, a difficulty that he had from from his youth. He was he had epilepsy, and he was pope for thirty two years, five years longer than Pope John Paul II. Now, blessed Pope Pius was pope uh, for the first Vatican Council, which he convoked and which remained unfinished. He was also uh, the one who infallibly defined the dogma of the Immaculate Conception of the Blessed Virgin Mary. Uh, He lived a holy life, a life of heroic virtue. And so he was beatified together with John the 23rd, blessed John the 23rd, by servant of God, Pope John Paul II, in the year 2000. Uh, His feast is the 7th of February. And uh, if you are ever in Rome, you should go and visit his tomb in the wonderful Roman Basilica, St. Lawrence outside the walls. It's one of the many wonders uh, to see there. Uh, Pope uh, Pius IX is praised and vilified at the same time uh, by different groups of people for such documents as the famous Syllabus of Errors, uh, a document which is very much at the heart of a dispute between many traditional Catholics and many progressivists. I, you know, in a way, uh, that dispute over uh, sil- the syllabus of errors, which continues today, reflects a lot of the aspects of uh, the Pope's life and his death, how he was viewed in his own time. He was either loved or hated. Uh, for example, when uh, he died and his casket uh, was being brought uh, in a procession three years after his death uh, to St. Lawrence outside the walls. Uh, Many people uh, were throwing flowers from the windows of their their homes down onto the carriage carrying his body towards St. Lawrence. But there were others uh, from political motives really hating the church, real, you know, kind of church-hating radicals and masons and so forth, shouted during the procession, death to the priests, death to the priests, death to priests. So this was a pope of tumultuous times in the late 19th century, when there was lots of political upheaval and a spirit of revolution. And it was, for example, during his reign that the papal states ceased to exist, and the Vatican City became the Pope's residence, or the Pope's kind of prison. But before that great upheaval, uh, even though he was the last of the Pope kings, or king popes, Papa Re, as you say in Rome, he could be seen walking around in the city, talking with the high-born and low-born alike, and he wanted his casket to be as simple as possible. It has a simple gold cross on it. It's nothing terribly elaborate, not some amazing big tomb. He's really a, a remarkable uh, figure. And so it is good that we turn to him right now uh, before this uh, year of priest begins and take a look at an, an encyclical friend of mine uh, sent me an email saying, hey, you've got to read this encyclical if you haven't read it. It's called Amantissimi Redemptoris of the Most Loving Redeemer. And it was written in 1858. It's an encyclical that the Vicar of Christ offers us about the dignity and the effects of Holy Mass and the dignity of the priesthood and its obligations, but it also lays down the law, really quite literally, about the obligation of those who have the cares of soul, care of souls to celebrate Holy Mass properly on Sundays and Holy Days and other feasts. The Pope explains what the context is. He said that there had been a relaxation of the discipline uh, in regard to celebrating Mass on holy days and you know, holy days of obligations and feasts for the people, the priests who have cares of souls, uh, 
Carousels have the obligation to say Mass for their people. And when the relaxation of this discipline had been offered because of various circumstances, etc., etc., human nature kicked in and, you know, people began, priests began to slack off. And so it was clear, as reports started coming in from around the world, that a correction was necessary. And so the Holy Father issued this encyclical by also by which also he changed the, the church's law. Now I'm going to read the whole English text of this encyclical. You know, modern encyclicals are, are pretty long. You know, they go on and on and on. But the older encyclicals were very concise. They really got down to the point. And so we can read the whole thing. Now, there are a few points you might want to keep your ear tuned for as I read. First, listen to how Pius IX describes the manner in which Mass should be celebrated. Mass should be celebrated with splendor and dignity so that people can have an experience of mystery. Also, you're going. I've been using this phrase, care of souls. Well, uh, this is important for the encyclical. This is the so-called cura animarum. It's a technical term in church talk. The church formally entrusts to uh, priests the office of teaching and governing and sanctifying for the good of souls, the souls under their charge. And this is formally binding on a man. And it, but it also mysteriously brings the man into Christ's own mission in a different way. Through the grace of holy orders, they are able to take on their own person in a deeper way, in a very formal way, Christ's own threefold mission to teach, govern, and sanctify, to care for souls as shepherds, as Christ cares for the souls of his flock through the church and through the church's ministry. And so this puts the priest very in, in a close bond with Christ himself, but also with that unbroken stream of the apostolic succession. Now, another point you want to listen for is his discussion of the relaxation of the obligations of the holy days and the reduction of the number of holy days and their obligation because of the circumstances of people's lives. Now, I think that sounds rather like what has happened in our own time. But Pius IX goes on to say that those days that were relaxed are still holy and people aren't actually doing their work, so we've got to make some changes. And I think that that perhaps is a persuasive argument even for our own time and how we approach holy days of obligation. A fourth, you want to listen to how Pope Pius, uh, how he worked, what his method of working was, and how he then he presents the results of that work. Uh, he was, first of all, you know, very solicitous for the care of the flock, and he says that this is why some concessions were made. So he isn't, you know, just being you know, really hard or harsh. You know, he's understanding that, you know, the care of souls is really involved in this. And we should relax what we can, but we have to stick to the principles when it's really important. So what did he do? He collected information about how things were going, and he decided that something was had been lost. And so he corrects the situation, not just from on high, but after consultation. He wants people to follow the law as it's written, but he also explains that you can obtain exceptions, but you have to go through a process to do it. You can't just decide to do it on your own. So he is at the same time both very strong, but also very pastoral. And this exemplifies uh, the care of souls entrusted to him as vicar of Christ, but it also is the way that bishops and priests should work, should stick to the law and still conscious that, you know, people have different circumstances, understanding how, understand how the law then can help people in their individual circumstances. So it doesn't heap undue burdens on them, but nevertheless, you're still caring for their soul so that they are not weakened in their identity or in their sanctity or in their understanding of the church's teaching. Now, uh, the Pope also refers to different congregations here. There's one congregation that doesn't exist anymore, the Congregation for the uh, Interpretation of the Council of Trent, and also for the Congregation of Propaganda. And remember that you know, propaganda comes from a Latin word, propago, which means, uh, first of all, to fasten down or also to extend and increase. So that ND form that sneaks in there, gerund or gerundive, 
uh, implies a necessity, something that really has to be done. So the, the word propaganda, neuter plural, uh, is, are, are things that are to be extended or increased. But when it's a gerundive, it functions like an adjective, and it's paired up with fides, with faith, propaganda, fides, right? Propagation of the faith. It's talking about the faith that must be extended and increased. And so there was a congregation set up uh, long ago that had wide powers of jurisdiction in mission territories where the faith of the church was being extended and being made secure. And so many of the decisions for the good of the church went through that congregation when it referred to mission territories. And that's what's going on uh, when Pius IX talks about the Congregation for Propaganda. Well, well, look, without further delay, let's get into the text of Blessed Pius IX's encyclical Amantissimi Redemptoris, written in uh, 1858, and it's about Holy Mass and the priesthood and obligation of the cure of souls, especially regarding the celebration of Mass and Holy Days. To our venerable brothers, the patriarchs, primates, archbishops, bishops, other ordinaries who have friendship and communion with the Apostolic See, greetings and apostolic blessing. Christ's love towards men was so great that not only was he willing to endure most cruel sufferings for our salvation and an atrocious death on the cross, but also he wished to nourish us eternally in the sacrament of his body and blood. In this way, he might strengthen us by the presence of his divinity and be the safest bulwark of our spiritual life. And not content to have loved us with such an outstanding and truly divine love, he heaped benefits on benefits, poured out the riches of his love upon us, and, as you know so well, Having loved his own, he loved them to the end. For declaring himself to be an eternal priest, according to the order of Melchizedek, he instituted permanently his priesthood in the Catholic Church. He decreed that that same sacrifice which he performed is to redeem the whole human race from the yoke of sin, to reconcile all things in heaven and earth, and to remain until the consummation of the world. He decreed that it be renewed and take place daily by the ministry of the priesthood. Only the reason for the offering is diverse, namely, that the salvific and most abundant fruits of his passion might forever be dispersed upon mankind. In the unbloody sacrifice of the Mass celebrated by priests, the same life-giving victim is offered up. This entreaty reconciles us to God the Father. It renews in a mysterious way the death of Christ, who, having risen from the dead, dies no longer. Death no longer has dominion over him. Still, he is sacrificed for us in the mystery of this sacred oblation. No unworthiness or wickedness on the part of those offering it can ever defile this oblation. The Lord predicted through Malachi that it would be great and would be cleanly offered from sunrise to sunset in all places to his name. This oblation abounding with an unspeakable richness of fruit embraces the present and future life. For by this oblation God is pleased, and, granting the grace and gift of repentance, remits even great crimes and sins. Although grievously offended by our sins, he is moved from anger to mercy, from the severity of just chastisement to clemency. By it, the title and obligation of temporal punishment is dissolved. By it, the souls of the departed in Christ, who have not yet been fully purged, are aided. By it, 
temporal goods are also obtained, if they do not stand in the way of greater benefits. By it, singular honor and cult are procured for the saints, and especially for the Immaculate and Most Holy Mother of God, the Virgin Mary. Wherefore, from the apostolic tradition, we offer the divine sacrifice of the Mass for the universal peace of the churches, for the right disposition of the world, for rulers, soldiers, allies, those laboring with infirmity, those oppressed by afflictions, for all who are in need, for those detained in purgatory, with the belief that it will be a help to those souls for whom prayer is offered before the holy and most awesome victim lying before us. Nothing is greater or holier than the unbloody sacrifice of the Mass, in which the body and blood of Christ are offered to God for the salvation of all. Holy Mother the Church has always been careful and diligent in order that the Mass be celebrated by priests with clean and pure hearts. It should be celebrated with the proper splendor of the sacred ceremonies and rites, so that the greatness of this mystery will shine forth all the more even from external appearances. This will also arouse the faithful to contemplation of divine things, hidden in such an admirable and venerable sacrifice. And with like solicitude and devotion, the same Most Holy Mother has never ceased to urge, exhort, and influence her faithful sons to frequently attend this divine sacrifice with due piety, veneration, and devotion. She teaches that they must at all cost be present at it, on all holy days of obligation, with their minds and eyes religiously intent on that from which the divine mercy and an abundance of all good things might be acquired. The sacrifice of the Mass must be offered by pastors of souls for the people committed to their care. This obligation comes from a divine precept according to the teachings of the Council of Trent, since the same council teaches in most express and grave words, it is by divine mandate that all those to whom the care of souls is committed are now to know their sheep and offer sacrifice for them. The encyclical letter of Benedict the Fourteenth of 19 August 1744 speaks most wisely about this obligation, explaining and confirming more fully the minds of the fathers of Trent. In order to remove all controversies, questions, and uncertainties, he clearly declares that pastors and all others actually having the care of souls ought to offer the sacrifice of the Mass for the people committed to them on all Sundays and holy days of obligation, as well as on those days on which he, lessening the number of holy days of obligation in some dioceses, allowed people to engage in servile work with the provision that the faithful fulfill the obligation of hearing Holy Mass. We are joyful when we learn from you in your communications that those in charge of souls diligently fulfill the obligation of their office on Sundays and other holy days of obligation, on which they rarely omit to offer the sacrifice of the Mass for the people entrusted to them. But we are not ignorant of the fact that in many places, the Mass is now customarily omitted by pastors on those other days which were formerly kept as holy days of obligation according to the constitution of our predecessor Urban VIII. Agreeing to petitions of various holy bishops and having before his eyes their causes and reasons, he lessened the holy days of obligation and not only permitted people to perform servile work, but granted also that they be exempt from the obligation of attending Holy Mass. But where this generous indult of the Holy See was promulgated, straightway the pastors of many regions, considering that they were free from the obligation of celebrating Mass for their people on these reduced Holy Days, neglected the obligation altogether. Hence, the custom evolved that pastors in these regions stopped offering Holy Mass for their people on the said days, and some did not even hesitate to defend and justify this custom. 
we are greatly grieved by this situation. Therefore, we have decided to remedy this matter, especially since we are aware that this apostolic see has taught that pastors are obliged to celebrate Mass for their people even on the reduced holy days. Our predecessors were moved by the vigorous pleas of the holy bishops, and many and varied needs of the faithful, and the grave concerns of circumstances, times, and places. As a result, they decided to lessen the number of holy days of obligation, and allowed people to undertake servile work on these days and to miss holy mass. Nevertheless, these same predecessors, in granting these indults, wished that the law remain intact and inviolate. They wished that on the aforesaid days no innovation ever be made in the churches as to the customary order and right of the divine offices. They meant for all things to be carried out the exact way they were before, while the constitution of Urban the Eighth was in force. This prescribed the holy days of obligation. On those days, pastors are not free from the obligation of offering Mass for their people. They will realize this especially when they recall that the pontifical rescripts are to be strictly interpreted. Moreover, we have frequently decreed that pastors are bound by the obligation of saying Mass for their people even on those days which were removed from the number of holy days of obligation. Wherefore, having weighed this matter carefully, and having consulted certain cardinals of our Congregation for the preservation and interpretation of the decrees of the Council of Trent, we have decided to write this encyclical letter to establish norm and law to be observed carefully and diligently by all pastors. Accordingly, in this letter, we declare that pastors and all those actually having care of souls should celebrate Holy Mass for their people on all Sundays and on days of obligation. Mass must also be offered on those days which by indult of this Holy See were removed or transferred from the number of Holy Days of Obligation, just as the clergy were obliged to do when the Constitution of Urban VIII was in full force before Holy Days of Obligation were lessened or transferred. As for feasts which have been transferred, we make one exception, namely, when the divine office of a solemnity has been moved to a Sunday, only one Sunday Mass need be offered by pastors for their people, since the Mass, being the principal part of the divine office, is considered as transferred along with the same office. Concerned with the peace of soul of those pastors who, on account of asserted custom, have omitted to offer Mass for their people on the days previously mentioned, we, by our apostolic authority, fully absolve them from each and every past omission, and because some claim that they have received from this apostolic see a special indult of reduction, we grant that they can continue to enjoy the benefit of this indult according, however, to the conditions expressed in the indult, and as long as they exercise the office of pastor in the parishes which they presently govern and administer. While, however, we make these provisions and grant these indults, we hope that pastors will glory in satisfying most diligently and religiously this obligation of offering Mass for their people. They should seriously consider the rich abundance of heavenly favors and earthly goods which redound on the Christian people committed to their care from the offering of this unbloody and divine sacrifice. Since, however, we know that particular circumstances can arise in which a remission of the obligation for a particular reason and time should be granted to pastors, we wish to inform you that all must apply uniquely to our congregation of the council to obtain this sort of indult. Only those who depend on the congregation for the propagation of the faith are exempted since we have given the proper faculties for this purpose to both congregations. We have no doubt that you will inform every pastor of your diocese concerning their obligation of offering the holy sacrifice of the Mass for the people committed to them. And we are convinced also that you will apply the greatest vigilance that those in charge of souls fulfill diligently this part of their task also, 
and carefully observe what we have decreed and sanctioned by this encyclical. We hope that a copy of this letter will be permanently kept in the records of each of your Episcopal curious. Since, venerable brothers, you yourselves know full well the holy sacrifice of the Mass contains a great source of instruction for the faithful, never cease to exhort pastors especially and other preachers of the divine word and those to whom the task of educating the christian people is delegated to explain to the faithful the necessity excellence greatness purpose and fruits of so holy and admirable a sacrifice likewise inflame the faithful themselves to frequently attend the sacrifice with the faith religion and piety it deserves that they may be able to obtain the divine mercy and all kinds of benefits they need. Nor should you cease encouraging the priests of your dioceses to be outstanding in moral integrity, dignity, innocence of life, and sanctity. Those who alone are given the privilege of consecrating the divine host and accomplishing so holy and awesome a sacrifice should display these qualities. Therefore, frequently exhort all who are initiated into the Most Holy Priesthood to give serious consideration to the ministry which they have received in the Lord. They should fulfill their ministry, being always mindful of the dignity and heavenly power with which they are endowed. They should shine forth with the splendor of all kinds of virtue. They should occupy themselves with divine worship, divine things, and the salvation of souls. Then, offering themselves as a living and holy host to the Lord, and always carrying about in their bodies the mortification of Jesus, they may duly offer with pure minds and clean heart to God the propitiatory host for their own salvation and that of all the world. Finally, we are pleased to use this occasion also to testify again to the special benevolence we have for you. We hope you will quickly proceed to carefully fulfill all aspects of your pastoral ministry, and that you will concern yourselves with the salvation and well-being of your beloved flock. Be assured that we are most ready to carry out lovingly all those things which we know can greater benefit your own and your diocese's well-being. Meanwhile, receive as a guarantee of all heavenly gifts and a witness of our deepest benevolence for you, the apostolic blessing, which we lovingly impart from the deepest sentiments of our heart to you yourselves, venerable brothers, and all the clergy and faithful laity committed to the vigilance of each of you. Given in Rome at St. Peter's, 3 May, 1858, in the twelfth year of our pontificate. That was the Encyclical of Blessed Pius IX of Happy Memory, Amantissimi Redemptoris. And there's a point I'd like to go back into, uh, this issue of the cura animarum. Now, the cura animarum, the care of souls, is at the very core of who a pastor is. And unfortunately, I don't think we talk about this enough. I think there has been a... Uh, movement away from language about the the cura animarum, away movement away from that term as maybe being a little old-fashioned, as being a, a, an obligation that is formally laid upon pastors of souls who receive a mandate from legitical, you know, legitimate ecclesiastical authority which brings them into a, a closer bond with the apostolic succession and with Christ's own threefold mission of teaching, governing, and sanctifying. This cura animarum is at the very core of who a pastor is. Now remember that pastor means shepherd. And priests and bishops have to be shepherds acting as Christ acted. 
and still acts in the church, teaching, governing, and sanctifying with sacrificial love. It's all bound up with charity, and that sacrificial love is modeled on the cross. It's the actual giving up of what is precious to yourself for the sake of another, for the true good of another, not for your your own good through them as if they are objects, but looking at them as the subjects of their own dignity, you determine what is truly their good, and then you make the necessary uh, sacrifices and take the necessary action on their behalf. And as pastors, as shepherds, they do this with a certain vocation according to a certain identity, which the church helps to um, prescribe for them for the good of the flock. So what they do is they, with the, through their care of souls, they offer themselves and they feed their flocks and they guide it and protect it. And they do what is good for them. And therefore, Holy Mass, which is both Calvary and the Last Supper, are is the principal means, I think, by which pastors who have the care of souls care for their flocks. Now think about how Pius in his encyclical describes how mass should be celebrated. He says it should be celebrated it should be celebrated with splendor as it always has been, so that people may know something of mystery. So we have here a concept of continuity and fidelity to tradition and fidelity to their vocation, not just, you know, doing it the way they think that it is best, but the way that Holy Church understands that it is best for the flock according to the flock's circumstances, you know, and their difficult uh, lives, uh, shaping the world around them according to their vocations. But what he has done is he's placed at the heart of this that encounter with mystery. And so I think in turn we have to say that one of the chief things that a priest needs to do in his care of souls is make sure that people encounter mystery. Without concern for that encounter with mystery, and the proper locus for that is worship of God, the celebration of the sacraments, and above all, during Holy Mass. Without concern for that encounter with mystery, everything else that is done in the liturgy is going to lose its bearings. Everything that is done, therefore, in the priest's work and in his own life is going to lose its true force. The people are going to have a weakened identity if they don't have this dimension of mystery always being presented to them in continuity with what the church has always done through the sacred rites, celebrated as in continuity with our tradition in the way they always have been, according to the way Holy Church wants them to be celebrated. Because through those rites, the true actor in the liturgy, Jesus Christ, high and eternal priest, is the he, as true actor he's the one whose voice is speaking he's the one whose gestures are uh, are witnessed by the faithful so everything that we do in worship as priests has to be offered for the true good of the faithful with sacrificial love always with an eye to mystery. And if that mystery isn't there at the heart of worship, then what is being done loses its true bearing and true force. So...
With that, I'm going to wrap up this podcast. Please visit us at the blog, wdtprs.com. That's Whiskey Delta Tango, Papa Romeo Sierra.com. What does the prayer really say? You can find it on the internet very easily just by Googling Father Z. Or also, uh, if you want an easier way to remember the address, just go to fatherzonline.com, F-E-T-H-E-R-Z-Online.com. And if in your charity, you would please, during this year of the priest, pray for your priests in a disciplined way. Make a plan for what you are going to do to pray for priests and to support them in prayer. I would be very grateful. And I would also ask a prayer for myself, as I also will pray for you. 